Hello, and welcome to A Novel Take with Ken and Ollie. Last summer, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests in response to the killing of George Floyd, a monument to Bristolian slave trader Edward Colston was torn down, sparking a national debate about Britain's relationship with its imperial past. At times it has felt as if there has been something of a culture war being fought in the public discourse, with the place of monuments and institutions being keenly debated. Thankfully, British journalist Sathnam Sangera has written a book to clear things up about empire. In this episode, we'll be discussing Empire Land, how imperialism has shaped modern Britain. Here, Sangera tries to lower the temperature on the culture war, exploring in detail what the British Empire was, and that's harder to define than it may seem, and how it has shaped British culture today. I think, um, to just to get started, what's really interesting um, about this book is that it, it talks about empire both in the sort of on the macro level, but also on the personal level. So it discusses the, the great sort of systematic changes, the, the, the huge historical events. But um, Sangera also ties it into his own story and his own background in order to, I guess, give, give a bit more emotional resonance to, to what he's discussing. He, he talks about his own complicated relationship of empire, um, being from a Sikh family, growing up in Wolverhampton, uh, how he benefited at times from some of the products of empire, but how also he felt that he his upbringing was fundamentally shaped in negative ways as well. For example, he talks about how uh, the legacies of Enoch Powell and the rivers of blood and skinheads and the far right um were, were sort of a constant presence on the on the the fringes of his childhood he talks about how empire is not just a national phenomenon but also something that has personal consequences so Sathan Sanger is a journalist and he's written before for channel 4 documentaries and for the bbc his previous books have looked at his sikh heritage and marrying a white woman in britain and how his sikh family responded so he's already Uh, very versed with these ideas of cultural exchange and his foreignness in uh, Britain. He's taking this to a political level with Empire Land, but as you say, Kenneth, it's got a personal resonance. He's from a Sikh background and he starts with uh, the Sikh community in the British Empire. There were Sikh regiments in the British Empire that were celebrated and there was even a Sikh member of parliament uh, in the 19th century, I believe, before other ethnic minorities were represented. So he uses this idea of the Sikh community being celebrated by Britain as a way into empire, which is peculiar. And you see why it's peculiar later on, because we find out that at the same time as the British Empire lauded Sikhs for their loyalty to the empire, there were moments where they were just as quick to dismiss them and even invade their territory as they did in the 1870s. So already his personal experience is capturing a problem with the British Empire. It's, it, it is the problem of how we remember it, right? It's at the same time this noble project, this civilizational project that uh, British civil servants in India wanted to pursue and in Africa and Christian missionaries. So we've got this glorifying edifice of empire. And at the same time, we've got these moments of incredible brutality, the Amritsar massacre, the uh, invasion of India in 1870, the crimes of Robert Clive and Warren Hastings in the East India Company. So the first question he's asking, and one that we all have to debate, is what is the British Empire? My understanding of it sort of goes into two paths. 
One is that empire is a way of understanding politics. It's about a self-proclaimed more advanced society or culture staking claim over a less advanced one and claiming to bring them up to their level. And it's also, of course, an historical period defined by uh, the East India Company uh, trading and uh, making territorial gains in India, defined by the Atlantic slave trade, of course, and defined by various revolutions and upheavals against colonial administrations in the period about 1600 to 1900. But I think the best single thing he does in this book is points out that it's not so easy to define what empire is, right? You've got, throughout this 300-year period, very murky boundaries about when empire starts. The East India Company starts as basically a bunch of pirates and smugglers and entrepreneurs, maybe they might call themselves right, who were going without the authority of any government to other countries, trading, developing uh, stock and share systems to manage the risk of shipping. So it starts with individuals just reaching out into other territories, and then it gets formalised later on with the East India Company coming under royal charter. And it's the same with the end of empire. When does empire end? If we see it as a sort of mindset, then arguably we're still in an age of empire to some degree, possibly. But then, of course, Britain dismantled all its colonies in the 50s and 60s. But his, his point is to open up the debate, you know, how does empire fit in not only to a, a concrete idea of the past, but to it, it bleeds into our culture is his, his main point, right? Yeah, absolutely, Ollie. I think, um, as you say, one of the overwhelming sort of th- threads that you find throughout this book is that there is no single narrative of empire. And part of it's due to its ephemeral nature, as you've said. There's, there are vagaries on when empire began the extent to which you can categorize things as, as part of the empire or not like for example the the east india company as you mentioned um you have things like the uh, slave trade which was certainly facilitated under the auspices of empire and so it, there there is discussion i think what sangera skillfully does in this book is that he he kind of calls people's attention that that many people sort of pick and choose the aspects of empire that they like and and either choose or are oblivious or are ignorant of the other aspect. And, and what he's really arguing for, in, in my opinion, and what I read from the book, is he's arguing for, firstly, a dialogue, but he's also arguing for a sort of an agreed uh, set of facts or an agreed education, whether in school, whether in university, whether just in the public discourse, so that there is a discussion of these, that different sides with different opinions of empire, the, the, the groups that think empire was a great thing, and the groups that think empire was a, a monstrous, genocidal regime can, can discuss, and, and we can come to a more balanced picture. I think something else that, that he shows that's, that's really interesting is the idea that, and, and this is mentioned by Simon Sharma as well, so many people think that sort of a, a statue is, is just a, a statement of fact, it's, it's not political in and of itself, it's, it's just something that exists, and, and therefore the idea of tearing down statues you're tearing down history and and that is like an objectively bad thing whereas actually i think shama says that statues brook no argument having a statue there regardless of of the fact that yes you can you can add context to it having the statues there does in and of itself give an implicit 
um, an an implicit message as to which which stories, which narratives we sh we should be attaching meaning to, and so it, it really is a complicated question, and and we need to think about how we display these legacies of empire in the public realm. I'm not sure I agree on the statue point. I think what Sangera points out is that even during the period of empire, the 300 years of British domination of the world, it was the vast, most vast territorial empire uh, the world had seen at that point and, and will be probably for the rest of history. But he's pointing out that there aren't clear moral boundaries about who's responsible for it. I think that's the first point he makes with regards to things like the East India Company. For example, Edmund Burke, the Irish parliamentarian, was writing speeches in Parliament in the 1770s, criticising Warren Hastings. There's a great list of speeches that he makes. And I think if you're taught that everyone, every parliamentarian who was part of the British system, was wholly in favour of empire, you'd be making not only a factual error, I think you'd be mistaking how we understand history itself. Edmund Burke criticises Warren Hastings as an individual, and he points out the, the East India Company was a uncoordinated, informal network of opportunists, often very violent people, very wealthy and very privileged people. But in pointing that out, I think South Amsterdam is actually trying to cut through the sort of violent debates we've been having about statues. My personal position on the statue issue is that we've got to have a discussion about what they mean. That's why I mean I don't agree that statues have an inherent meaning. I think their meaning is open to discussion. It is the object of discussion itself. And I think it's worth thinking about statues in other contexts as well. When Napoleon, for example, left Berlin in the 1810s, he left an eagle statue on top of the Brandenburg Gate. That was not removed, and there was a big debate in Berlin and in Germany at the time whether, whether it should be removed. And the authorities at the time decided, no, it's part of our history now. And I think the same has to be said for the statues that we have in Britain now. They are part of the texture of British society as they move through, but it does not mean that statues have a, a single meaning. That meaning is constantly referred back to as that society develops. And I think it's happening with Churchill, for example. We don't see now Churchill as the glorified figure he once was. But removing his statue, I, I don't see how it furthers that discussion. I think it angers people because Churchill was many things to many people. And one thing he was that is very important for, for a lot of people was a national figure at a time of crisis. And I think Satham Sigur is trying to cut through that divide in the debate and he's trying to suggest that actually we shouldn't need to tear stuff down, right? We can discuss it openly and we should and we absolutely should criticise yeah, it. Yeah, uh, no, I, I do agree with that, Oli. And I, I'm not saying that absolutely every sort of, uh, every every statue should be torn down at all. I think I think you're right. He argues for a more nuanced reading of history and a contextualization. I think it's 
very interesting when you read the book uh, as well. I mean, something that certainly came as a shock to me is the public outcry. I mean, you mentioned Edmund Burke, but also the public outcry there was at many of the crimes of empire. We kind of, I mean, I always had a view that that the British populists, I mean, firstly, wouldn't have really had any say, so to speak. But secondly, would have been sort of in kind of a jingoistic or, or patriotic or nationalistic way, would have been very pro-empire. But it seems that at the time, a number of the excesses of, of empire were decried. For example, uh, the the looting of Tibet, um, that that's mentioned several times in in the work. I think what he's arguing for is is just this public discourse, as you say. But I I I do stand by the fact that I think the way certain statues are treated at the moment, they do not encourage discourse. I think they should be brought into the discourse. I'm not I'm not arguing for sort of hammers to be taken to them or them to get the Saddam Hussein treatment. <laughs> but I do believe that that there needs to be this this public discussion. I think I think any discussion is is a good thing. That's I think one of the ways this book really moved me, actually. And the phrase that captured this idea for me was emotional loot. He has a whole chapter on the museums, the cultural heritage that Britain has accumulated over its 400-year imperial past in places like the British Museum, the countless other places, and in, in wider culture, films, and so forth. Cultural amnesia is also an important part of this. There's a great, well, a very informative memory I have of watching the film The Wind That Shook the Barley, which was a cooperation by, I believe, the British Film Council and Irish directors. It depicted the aftermath of the, aftermath of the Easter Rising in 1916. This was when Irish rebels, Ireland at this point was a colony, by the way, of Britain, probably the first and often said the most disruptive colony of Britain. Ireland had a rebellion in 1916. There was a civil war in 1920. We watched this film together and my dad react in a, in a very peculiar way. British soldiers were deployed after the Easter Rising to quell the rebellion in Ireland, and they used violence. They burned barns, they pillaged and they raped women. They committed horrible crimes that I was taught about at school, but certainly many people are not. And certainly my parents' generation, I don't think, and, and your parents might be similar, I don't know, weren't really exposed to this either. Britain was generally a benign force in world history, and we can maybe debate certain merits of that argument uh, in greater detail later. But he wasn't able to confront the fact that empire was fundamentally built on violence, that beneath the civilizational discourse, beneath the advanced democratic institutions, if they were implemented, beneath the light touch that the British Empire supposedly employed in various parts and what allowed it to expand so far, and these are things that made it more effective. It was a violent substructure, and this is something that Frantz Fanon, Mahatma Gandhi all commented on. So there's a need to have a discussion to bring these areas back in, and the first thing that can be done is to look at the physical artefacts in the British Museum and so forth, and this idea that Britain can claim these for itself. The emotional loot argument was so powerful for me because... It pointed out that these aren't just objects, they're part of the soul of a culture. There was a great 
campaign read, led by a Aboriginal man called Rodney Kelly a few years ago for the Gweagle Spears. These were taken by Captain Cook when he arrived in Australia, and they're actually sacred to the Aboriginal people. He's a man who has no necessary connection himself to these spears, but he feels himself to be part of the Aboriginal culture. He is Aboriginal ethnically, and these Gweagle Spears are part of his identity as they were for those from whom they were stolen 300 years ago. So that, I think, was was one of the, the biggest things that it moved for me, was this idea that actually there are physical remnants of a theft, a, a, a an orchestrated, not always endorsed, but an orchestrated theft carried out by British soldiers, ad hoc, whatever, but that has now been institutionalised in, in, in our culture and that we now go and pay to see. Absolutely, Ollie. I think I think it's a really interesting point you've just made there um, because there is this idea, I mean, I, I want to talk about um, the kind of material cost of looting and, and that's something that I'll maybe get onto in a minute or two, but I think this idea of emotional loot is very important and it's sometimes quite difficult or it's quite an easy thing to dismiss i think i think like especially sort of in the the rationalized um sort of secular western culture we can think of these things and and be quite dismissive of them but i mean it's just occurred to me as as a, as a proud scot um there's there's the example of the stone of of schoon and i mean that was that was taken by edward the first back in the the 13th century i believe um and it was it was stolen by some Scottish students in the nineties, sort of stolen back from Westminster Abbey and brought back up to Scotland. But that, even though that was like an eight hundred nine hundred year old relic, uh, a stone, it it still carried a lot of emotional weight for the Scottish people. And I think once you put it in a context in which you can more uh, easily familiarize yourself, you realize that actually, yeah, the, these these do have have a, a great degree of resonance, and and you can kind of empathize more with the, the movement to repatriate this stuff i think um in terms of the material cost of empire that's that's a i mean that's a whole subject in and of itself and i'm sure we could talk about it in, in a probably relatively ill-informed way for hours um but there there is both the the emotional cost but then also the 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 material cost i mean huge quantities of materials were stolen uh, or or taken um, in ambiguous circumstances, let's say, uh, not only from Tibet but from from all all over uh, the world, really. And and I think that that has effects both on an institutional level. Um, for example, the the pooling of all these goods and the fact that London was the hub of this great empire still has importance today. It's it's the reason the city of London punches above its weight and is still, in many senses, the the global financial sec center. But um, Sangera also talks about uh, a very sort of specific instance where he saw um, a member of the British public on the show Flog It um, and they were told that they would get £140,000 for this Tibetan artefact that their grandfather had come across uh, in the early 20th century. And that shows that how on the personal level we might also, or we, I say we as sort of white Britons, may may be personally benefiting i mean that's that's perhaps a bizarre example but i think it illustrates quite nicely it's a banal example right and that, that's maybe the point it's this banal uh, acceptance of tibetan artifacts appearing on a game show yeah exactly and you wouldn't think twice unless you 
there is there is a, a an interesting it's it's very interesting to analyze that thought process yeah and it, it also points to the, to the debate about reparations which often gets an absurd debate i mean you raised the material cost of empire there actually have been informed attempts to work out the cost it's been in the trillions obviously of pounds and there are people on the left or on the radical end of this debate i'm thinking people like kehinde andrews sociologist at birmingham city ash sarkar a very polemical uh, self-professed communist she's often been on good morning britain having very productive discussions with piers morgan they they do really make the case for reparations. I am not a fan of the reparations angle and Satham Sanghera doesn't broach it directly either. I think that's why I liked the emotional loot thing because it moved the debate to, I think, a more substantive and a more productive area, which is how can we have new discussions rather than try and withdraw 300 years of material exploitation, which is both practically difficult but also raises serious moral problems about culpability which i'll get to in a sec but i just want to read a fascinating quote that came from a journalist in 2003 who interviewed an iraqi uh, grandfather a very old man he was around and he had memory of the uh, various invasions the first gulf war by america and with help from britain but also he had family memory of 1917. His relatives remembered the Great War when Britain invaded Iraq. And he says, they, the British, say that their imperial era is over now. It does not feel that way when you hear the staccato crack of fireballs from the air. It is then that you dream of real freedom, inshallah, freedom from the RAF. And that just, that quote really sent home how... For countries that have faced disruptive, chaotic pasts like Iraq and elsewhere, empire hasn't gone away. And for the Iraq war, for example, we're talking about it in geostrategic terms, we're talking about it in terms of Saddam Hussein and democracy and liberalism. But in so many ways, it's a continuation via redemption of... The, the imperial idea, the basic idea that the more developed nations of the world could and should intervene in other places to bring them up. Is there much of a difference between that mentality and imperialism? There's a, a good debate to be had there. But to go back to the reparations point, the material cost, I think a good way to think about it is look at historical examples of times when countries, groups of people, have been held morally responsible for historical crimes. The best example I can think of is the Versailles negotiations after World War One. Now, that was actually much easier because you had a formal declaration in 1914 and the formal end in 1918. There was a clear timeline of when things happened. There was clear culpability because it was governments organising the warfare. But look how that ended up. We had a Germany and its people that felt resentful, recriminated and alienated from other people how do you how do you get a country to acknowledge and then to repay in a material way crimes have been committed over 300 years by not even by formal institutions necessarily but by individuals on their own regard etc etc it's it's too difficult so I, I think that's why satham 
Sangera doesn't broach broach it directly. He talks, as you said, about the argument and about the discussion and how we can reorientate and, and truly move into a post-imperial world where we are seeing things for how they were, but trying to move on and trying to come to a reconciliation over it. I mean, I would completely agree, Ollie. I think it's... <laughs> There's so many vagaries involved when sort of trying to categorize, classify empire. It, 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 it's 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 an, an impossible task. I think I think there is this idea. Of... I think there are ways of describing empire, but I just think it's it's an historical period, just like feudalism, just like the classical era, and it obviously bequeaths certain characteristics to the era that goes after it. But it's not clear because, you know, as I understand it, it's a it's a set of power relations, not a thing that is unilaterally done by one person or one group, and that also raises awkward questions about the complicity of people in colonies where they were serving as civil servants and whatnot, and also raises the fact that there were critics within imperial metropoles as well. George Orwell, uh, being a, a famous example, critics like Edmund Burke. So it just it just makes complicated the idea that we can narrow it down to culpability in the way that we could do for for criminal uh, courts or, or wars and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think, as, as you say, he kind of um, shies, not shies away, but he, he doesn't want to specifically engage with the reparations debate in, in a lot of depth. I think, and if we, if we bring it back to what we discussed initially, where... I think the central message of this book is that we need to have a discussion about empire. It can't be something that's shied away from anymore. It can't be something where there are different echo chambers with, with zero overlap um, allowed to persist in which you have one narrative of empire in one and a completely different one in another. It comes down to education, right? He's a big... This is the big point he makes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean he's an advocate for bringing back Empire Day, which, as he tells us, was um, a celebration in the early 20th century of the empire in all British schools. There would be a day dedicated to discussing sort of the, the triumphs of empire, um, the, the range of empire, the different cultures that were taken over or were incorporated into the British Empire. And I, I believe he's arguing for something like that in the modern era, perhaps uh, a less triumphalistic um, version, but but something in which empire is discussed and it's discussed openly, and and lights shone upon it, and and he's and we're able to engage with it effectively. I mean, one one of the things that I think I think is great about this book is that it, it talks, it, it acknowledges the difficulty of the subject matter, and and he gives us all these anecdotes about uh, different individuals throughout this four hundred five hundred year period. Uh, of of British Empire and, and how their lives were impacted in a myriad of, di of different ways and how it, it's not just um, it's it's not just split between the, these sort of good and evil people. Of course, it's far more complicated than that. There are a myriad of shades of of grey there. It does raise a potential criticism, I think, of the book possibly and the way it handles it. I don't think it's necessarily Sangera's fault. I think it comes through the sort of subject matter we're dealing with. He's taken upon himself to try and understand how empire affects British culture. The culture itself is very porous. There was a great debate in academia between a guy called Bernard Porter and uh, Schwartz. I can't remember his first name, but it was about to what extent did British people 
know about empire? Like, did working class people know it was happening? How vague was their presence of India and West Africa and so forth? Did it matter to their lives? Sanghera's on the, I think, the Schwartz side, which is the side that says, yes, British people were very conscious of it, and he uses Empire Day as an example. Another very visceral event for him is Enoch Powell's speech in 1968, the Rivers of Blood speech, which draws on colonial ideas. He was a colonialist himself uh, and a, a, a great fan of Empire, but it's also worth noting that he had a a strange relationship to empire. He sort of loved India with a, a passion and he, he he seemed at times to love its people while at the same time degrading them and talking in his speech about one day the black man having the whip hand famously um, over the white man. But it also, I think, leads on Sengera's part to some over-readings. So I think the, the most obvious example of this is when he talks about coronavirus. He says that Boris Johnson's announcement that many people would die in the coronavirus led one FT reader to remark online that his tone was defined somewhat by the Etonian mindset that caused famine across empire. Now, I think that is an extreme example of the stretch. I mean, the idea of a politician during a health pandemic saying lots of people will die does not necessarily need to evoke imperial rhetoric. And the sort he uses here is also concerning. He uses... A Financial Times reader's anonymous comment online. Yeah, you know, I mean, th there's just an overreading problem there that I think we need to be careful of if we're going to have a proper discussion about this. No, no, absolutely, and I, I would, I mean, this, this sounds like a disparaging comment. I don't intend it as, but I would say that this is kind of pop history. This is not a, a, a yeah. this is not an he academic text. Like he's not. He's a journalist. He's not, he's not a historian. And yeah. he says, like, and he, I mean, he declares it um, at, at the start that he has very little knowledge of empire personally, aside from the anecdotal personal evidence um, or personal experience that he's had growing up. And that's why he begins with that. And then thereafter, it's, it's his journey of discovery. So to conclude, Sanger is trying to open up the discussion. He's trying to cut through the partisan debate, whether it's empire was this great thing and that criticisms of it are traitorous or empire was this uh, unambiguously um, moral calamity that can be directly pinned onto certain people and requires unilateral often radical action to overturn he's not an historian and you can tell in this book and there are times where I got frustrated with it just from an historical level but he is appealing to a popular audience and I think his biggest message is that, as Simon Shammer said, history is argument. We've got to have the argument. We've got to make the damn case. This has been a novel take with Ken and Ollie. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating or leave a comment on your platform of choice. We hope you will tune in to our next episode.